Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning again, Denver Community Church. I'm glad you're here. Happy New Year again as well. Um, We're entering our time of teaching now as part of our morning worship, and I get to introduce uh, our guest teacher this morning. Paula Williams is with us. Um, For those of you that know Paula, she's been here many times with us. If you don't know Paula, uh, she is an author, speaker, uh, a pastor, a preacher for sure, and a friend. Uh, and what I love about Paula is she brings such a unique uh, perspective on, on faith, on church. Um, she brings so much wisdom, so much experience. And so if you would, just help me welcome her to the platform for our time of teaching. Thank you. So I am 54% English, 24% Scottish, 12% Irish, and 9% Welsh. When I go to the British Isles, I feel at home. I know a lot about my ancestry, but it's kind of peculiar because I'm not actually all that close to my family of origin. That's rather typical for a lot of us who are Americans. We know a lot about our ancestry, but we're not all that close to our families of origin. Why is that so? Well, the primary reason is because we as humans operate from one of three different moral standards. Most Americans work from the third of the three moral standards. What are the moral standards? The first and oldest moral standard of our species is that there is no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. This is the oldest moral standard, still operative in many nations of Africa, South America, some places in the Middle East, other places in Indonesia. The first moral standard, there's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. The second moral standard, also ancient, is that there is no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. Now, this is the moral standard of all forms of fundamentalism, wherever you find it, particularly the fundamentalist forms of the three desert religions. There are three Abrahamic desert religions. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And all three began as religions of scarcity because, hey, they began in the desert. Not a lot of resources in the desert. Got to take care of me and mine. In fact, you can contrast those three religions with, let's say, Native American religions or Pacific Islander religions. Those religions are all religions of abundance. 
There's enough for everyone because they began in places of abundance. But the three desert religions, the Abrahamic religions, began in places of scarcity, and in their more liberal forms, they are very generous, but in their fundamentalist forms, they remain religions of scarcity. The greatest influence in the Middle East would be fundamentalist Islam. The greatest influence in Israel, fundamentalist Judaism. And the greatest influence here in the United States would be fundamentalist Christianity. So that is the second moral standard by which humans operate, that there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. But there's a third moral standard. Now, the third moral standard is by far the youngest of the three. It's only about 2,000 years old. It's the moral standard that says there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. Now, this is the moral standard of pretty much all of the Western world. It's the moral standard of Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, most of the United States, particularly the Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, major cities, major university towns. It is the moral standard of Canada, the moral standard of Australia, New Zealand, the moral standard that says there's no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. And it's a standard that has been developing for a long time. 1215, the Magna Carta, born out of that standard. All democracy, born out of that standard. And it shot throughout the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That is the moral standard by which most Americans operate, that there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. And I already said this standard is only about 2,000 years old. Where did it come from? Well, what is it that separates the Eastern world from the Western world? Just one thing, Christianity. This third moral standard comes from the teachings of Jesus. The third moral standard is the Jesus moral standard, that there's no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. That is not the world into which he came. The world into which he came was operating from two standards enmeshed the first two. And so many of the 613 laws of the Hebrew scriptures were designed to keep the tribe intact. They were designed to make sure the nation thrived. First moral standard, no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. The second moral standard, no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. That's the other thing that was involved in the 613 laws of the Hebrew scriptures. And that wasn't enough for them. They wrote thousands more. And into that world, Jesus came and said, yeah, we're changing things. And prophetically, we already had a glimpse of what Jesus was going to do. It's the day we celebrated yesterday. Yeah, it's the epiphany. Why on earth did three guys from Persia come to see the young baby Jesus? Why? Because they were not kings, they were prophets. They were astrologers, Zoroastrian astrologers from Persia. And their perspective on life was very different than most people of the day. They thought there was no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. So there's no mistake as to why they were invited, because it was, in fact, a prophetic way of subtly saying, this child is going to change everything. 
And it didn't take long before Jesus in his ministry began changing everything. The first place in which he brought about this new paradigm shift to a new moral standard was as it relates to the nuclear family unit. He came into a world in which you were obedient to your parents, period. No matter what your age, if your parents were still alive, you were obedient to them. They say it's in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Only by the time of Jesus, it was being interpreted, obey your father and mother. And in fundamentalist Christianity, that's still pretty much what's taught. And for me personally, it's a really good thing. Because you see, I'm a psychotherapist. My doctorate is in counseling. And that particular teaching to honor your father and mother brings me more clients than anything else. I mean, really, it keeps me in business. It's like, yes, keep believing that, that's okay. It's not obey your parents, it's honor your parents. And how do you best honor your parents? By living an authentic life. By absorbing and believing that the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. When you live authentically, focused on the truth, you are honoring your parents, whether they recognize it or not. So Jesus is out teaching. He's been teaching quite a while now. And he keeps saying things like, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant of all. And his mother and his siblings are like, he has lost his mind. And so they went to get him to bring him home, just to kind of get him out of circulation and maybe kind of bring him back to his right mind. And he hears from the people to whom he's speaking that they're outside the door and he refuses to go out. And then he says to the crowd, who is your siblings, who is your family, who is your father and mother? It's people who do the will of God. A strikingly different teaching than anything they had heard before. The first time he really is establishing this new moral standard that there's no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. And then he continues with the passage we're going to be looking at today. This passage was assigned to me by your lead pastor, Michael, and it's because Michael doesn't like me. I mean, I preach here a lot over the last four or five years, and he always gives me one of those impossible passages, and when I first read it, it's like, thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. Not really. So Jesus, carrying on, says to them, 12th chapter of Luke, beginning with verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it's completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Okay, we get it, Luke. <laughs> he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, gonna rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and sure enough, it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? He's basically saying to the disciples, you guys should know this already. But because you're not paying attention, I'm going to have to tell you, because his 12 disciples were very much caught up into those first two moral standards. They thought Jesus had come to defeat the Romans and bring independence back to Israel. And what Jesus tells them in this passage is, not why I'm here. And what I need you to do is to be peace 
makers. Peacekeepers are a dime a dozen. You can find peacekeepers anywhere. A lot of folks are peacekeepers. Peacemakers, a whole different story. To make peace, you have to be willing to go through conflict. And most people simply are not willing to do that. Why? Because there's a little myth we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves that we care about the truth and freedom more than we care about belonging. Not so. We as a species care more about belonging than we do about the truth or freedom. So in my practice, I'll have a lot of people come to me who've been sexually abused, often tragically by their father. And as they work through their abuse, they're finally ready to confront their perpetrator. And so they will say to me, I'm ready to have my family join me and confront my father. I know they will be on my side because they were there, they saw everything that happens, and I'm the one who has to tell them, yeah, don't be so sure. Because what you're likely to discover is that the other members of your family are more interested in belonging than they are in the truth. And yes, you will confront your father, but more than likely you will be standing alone. And I wish I wasn't right most of the time, but I'm right most of the time. It's because most of us are more interested in belonging, even if it's a corrupt system, than we are in standing up for the truth and standing up for freedom. Why is this so? Do you know we as a species are neurobiologically wired for deep human connection? It is in our DNA to want deep human connection. You know, dogs were domesticated 30,000 years ago, 20,000 years before horses. I don't know why that's important, but I suppose it is. 30,000 years ago, dogs were domesticated, so actually we've been able to watch them evolve along with, along with us. And no wonder they've evolved to love us unconditionally. That's our greatest need, to be loved unconditionally. But then, tragically and ironically, every last one of us seems to think there's something about us that makes us unworthy of being loved unconditionally. It just seems to be a part of the human spirit that we think there's something wrong with us that causes us to not be worthy of unconditional love. So it's my privilege to coach TED speakers. I coach all of our speakers here at the largest TEDx in North America, TEDx Mile High in Denver. I, I host and MC every, one of, every other one of their shows. And I also get to work with TED speakers at, at Big TED, New York TED, the international organization. And every November, they invite me in to speak with all of the speakers who've been chosen to speak for TED Women. It's usually about 45 of them. And they ask me to talk about the experience since I've spoken for TED Women. And, and so I talk with them about what they're going to experience. And it's always interesting to me, every year, I wait until the end and start talking about imposter syndrome. And inevitably, the entire room is shaking their heads. I don't know why I'm here. Now, these are the smartest women on the face of the earth. They've been chosen to give a TED talk, and yet all of them are saying, I don't know why I'm here. A couple of years ago is my favorite. It was one woman who just kept saying over and over again, I, I shouldn't be here. There's nothing I can bring to the table. And, I said, you know, I'm, okay, I'm just going to stop you just for a minute. Best I can tell, you're the only person in the room here who just got back from the International Space Station and the only one whose husband is there right now. So maybe you do belong here. 
Imposter syndrome comes from the fact that all of us feel like there's something about us that makes us inherently unworthy of deep human connection. And why do we feel that way? Oh, guess what? It's the second reason I have clients. Original sin. The notion that we are born in sin. That from the second we are born, God really can't stand us because we're not perfect. And so God has no choice but to send us to hell unless God is willing to sacrifice his own son because that's the only way that we could ever become semi-lovely. You know, interestingly, this notion of original sin did not show up in the life of the church until the fourth century. It did not come into the church through Jesus. It came into the church through Augustine, who lived from 340 to 420. Interestingly, it very quickly was adopted by all of the rest of the Christian world. Why? Because those in power kind of liked that. Because if I can keep you scared of hell, then I can stay in a position of power. And so it became a very common teaching and still is to this day. Not here, thank God. Interestingly, the Franciscans never bought into it. The Franciscans always said, God loves us just as we are. No changes demanded. We are loved as we are. And until you can come to that, to recognize there is nothing about you that makes you inherently unworthy of love, until you can realize you are worthy of love just as you are, you will not ever be able to make peace. Because when you are frightened of judgment and being abandoned and not having a place to belong, you stay at the level of surface relationships. You stay at the level of superficial relationships. That's the first step of creating true peace, becoming peacemakers, is to recognize most of our relationships are surface, superficial relationships. Did you ever notice in your family, or maybe it's your work, that as soon as somebody tiptoes out of that area and goes into the next stage of peacemaking, which is open and honest conversation that often involves conflict, what happens most of the time? People rush back to the superficial relationship because they're terrified of the conflict that's going to occur. But that is, in fact, the second step of being a peacemaker. You have to be willing to enter open and honest communication, and you have to be willing to identify the elephant in the room. So there was a family I was working with a lot of years ago, back east in New York, and there were two sisters. Both sisters had sons. The older sister had a teenage son who had autism. The younger sister had a much younger son. And tragically, the teenage son of the one sister sexually abused the younger child of the other sister. And so the sisters were not speaking to each other. The law had become involved in the process, which was appropriate. And it was a very difficult time for the family. And I agreed to work with them to see what kind of reconciliation could occur. It was interesting to me. I, I got this phone call from the father of the two sisters, who was, in fact, a leader in that particular church. And he said, you have got to get my younger sister, or my younger daughter, to forgive her sister. You've got to do that, or it's going to tear this family apart. Well, I happened to know what he did not know that I knew, that that man had abused both of his daughters. And in all likelihood, had abused the grandson with autism. And here he was commanding that his one daughter forgive the other daughter. 
And I said to the daughters when I met with them alone, you know this will not be resolved when the elephant has not been identified. Until you are willing to confront your father, there's not going to be family reconciliation. Courageously, they did, and it took a long time. But that family came back together closer than they had ever been before. It can happen, but you have to be willing to step into open and honest conversation. You have to be willing to be open to conflict. And if you've done that, then eventually you move on to the third stage of peacemaking. The third stage is delightful. It's the stage of emptiness. You know what it's like. You get a huge fight with your spouse, and you are just wiped out. It's like worse than the flu. Any time we get into a major confrontation with those we love, even if it's an open and honest conversation, we come out of it exhausted, empty, needing space into which we can retreat. But personally, there's another reason that after open and honest conversation, I end up in a place of emptiness. It's because when I get to the place of emptiness, I recognize there were two elephants in the room. One of them was me. I see what I did to create the conflict, what I have done to stop it from being resolved. And usually when I come to that realization, it's the same kind of issue that has gotten me in trouble before. I discover in my own life the things that got me in trouble at 18 also got me in trouble at 38, also got me in trouble at 58, and they're likely to get me in trouble at 88. James Hollis, the union analyst, calls these our existential guilt. I like his concept. I don't like his words. I call it our abiding shadows. There are some parts of us that are not flattering, some parts of us that are shadows that are not healthy for us. And those aspects of ourselves that are not healthy, we work at getting rid of them, and we work at getting rid of them, and we work at getting rid of them, but some of them just keep showing up in our lives. And try as hard as we might, we can't seem to get rid of them. I actually have a plaque on my dresser. This is sad. I have a plaque on my dresser that says, it's all right to have an unexpressed thought. So many times, it would have been better had I just kept my mouth shut. Nothing needed to be said at the moment. That is my abiding shadow, one of many. And when I realize that that has been involved in creating conflict, oh, God, it's so hard. And with these abiding shadows that we all have, there's really only one thing you can do, and that is to name them, to be open and honest enough and to hear it often enough from others that this is a problem of who you tend to be and to own it. Because once you can identify it and own it, you can lock it in the basement. And it will get out of the basement inevitably because it just does. But you'll see quickly that it escaped and you'll go and find it before it's done too much damage and you'll lock it in the basement again. That's about the best you can hope for. All of us have those aspects of ourselves that try as we might not not, we're not really ever going to be able to get rid of them. I call them our abiding shadows. 
And when you're in this place of emptiness, you have to rest within the truth of those abiding shadows and that you were, in fact, the other elephant in the room. And only then can you get to the fourth stage of peacemaking. First of all, recognizing most relationships are shallow, superficial. Second, being willing to step into the chaos of honest, open conversations. Third, being willing to sit in the emptiness that comes. And finally, you are able to courageously make peace. Many of the great poets talk about this sequence that Jesus was asking his disciples to do. One of my favorites is William Butler Yeats, his poem, Vacillation. He talks about, first of all, the good side of being my age, and I am older than dirt. I, I am, in fact, older than you think I am. And he talks about that, and, and in one stanza he says, my 50th year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a crowded London shop, an open book and an empty cup on the marble tabletop. As on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed for 20 minutes, more or less it seemed, so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. Oh, I love being at that stage of life. I enjoy speaking. I love speaking. At this point in my life, I would rather coach other speakers than I would to speak. It brings me incredible joy to be able to bless others. You know, they tell us at TED, our job is to take scientific nerds and give them jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing that. I love being at that stage of life where I can bless others. But then in the very next stanza, oh, I love this stanza, the very next stanza of vacillation, Yeats says, though summer sunlight gild cloudy leafage of the sky or wintry moonlight sink the field in storm-scattered intricacy, in other words, whether a sunny summer day or a beautiful winter night, I cannot look thereon. I cannot look thereon. Responsibility so weighs me down. Things said or done long years ago or things I did not do or say but thought that I might say weigh me down. And not a day but something has recalled my conscience or my vanity appalled. Yeah, that's a man who knows his abiding shadows. Those who can truly make peace have two paradoxical strengths. Henry Nouwen used to write about this. Peacemakers have great confidence because they know they're loved as they are, no questions asked, no changes demanded, coupled with great humility because they know they have abiding shadows that are going to be with them for all of their days because they're human and they're busted and it's okay. The greatest leaders have always had those two paradoxical strengths, great confidence coupled with great humility. That's what Jesus is calling the disciples to do, and it's what he's calling you and me to do. The late Mary Oliver, who was a Christian, caught the essence of this in my favorite poem of hers, The Journey. One day you knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, mend my life, but you wouldn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers of the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. She's talking there about all those people who want, who want you to take care of their needs, who want you to come to their side. 
One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, so the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with the stiff fingers of the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left those other voices behind, Little by little, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. God, thank you for giving us work to do. We need the work. We're wired to need work. Give us the wisdom to be peacemakers, to be open and honest in communication, to be able to look deep inside our own souls and see that sometimes, yeah, we're the elephant. And God, thank you because the reason I can do that is because I know you love me just as I am. No changes demanded, no questions asked. You, you love me with all of my abiding shadows. Give me the courage to continually be open and honest and truthful. Give me the courage to continue to make peace instead of keep it. Give me the courage to create a world that recognizes that the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. Give me that strength, God. Amen. As we continue in worship, as we come to the table, I'm going to read a liturgy for us, and then we will, um, I invite our, our, our hospitality team to come forward and get that, start to get that ready as we come to the table. Um, so receive this reading now. All are welcome at the table. Jesus beckons us saying, come all poor and needy. Come all brokenhearted and despaired. Come all fear-filled and lonely. Come all joyful and sad. Jesus transcends the borders and walls we have built around ourselves and around others. He transcends beyond race, religion, politics, sexuality and all our differences, saying to everyone, there is a chair for you at the table. All you have to do is come with a hunger ready to receive and take your seat, for all are welcome at the table. And that night through Matthew, Jesus said these words, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We like to say here at DCC that this is not the table of DCC, but this is the table of Christ, and all are welcome. So we're going to sing a few more songs, and at this time, there will be two stations here, my front, one to my left, and one to my right. If you come down the middle aisles and the sides and go back to your seats that way, come when you're ready. Take your time. We're going to sing. There's no rush. If you're in a place where you need to run to the table because that's where you are, then run. If you need to take a moment and rest, rest. 
This is your time now. Come when you're ready.